know the oldest lie in America, Senator? That power can be innocent. Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. So first, I want to talk about this shooting in Atlanta where the scumbag murdered eight people, six of them Asians. Now, no matter what I say in a situation like this, it always seems inadequate. I'm just a regular old white dude trying to make sense of this shit. And I hope I don't offend any of my Asian brothers and sisters out there with my thoughts on this, but here goes. The authorities and people on the right want to do everything in their power to not consider this a hate crime towards Asians. They say that the asshole was a sex addict and that's why he went to these spas and murdered so many. And which of those stories is true? Is it a hate crime? Or was this guy just a sex addict? I mean, I don't know for sure right now. But this shitbag had a thousand potential targets for his hate, and he chose places staffed by Asians. That's good enough for me. The coward was full of hate and directed it at a certain subset of human beings. Whether it technically fits some definition of hate crime is kind of besides the point. Sometimes things just are what they seem, regardless of anything else. And when we consider that this attack, this murderous, brutal attack, came amid a rise in violence, discrimination, and hatred directed towards Asians all across this country, I think the answer becomes just a little bit more clear. We've discussed this before here. I've talked about how my wife, who is a Korean woman, feels the need to wear large sunglasses to hide her eyes in public because she feels unsafe. This racism, the hatred, and violence certainly existed before Donald Trump took office. It existed long before I was born. It has existed for hundreds of years in this country. But I do want to note that the more recent spike in anti-Asian sentiment and violence is directly and strongly correlated with the rhetoric of the former president, Donald Trump, and his allies. This is the obvious and predictable result of framing China as our quote-unquote enemy. This is the obvious and predictable result of Kung flu, China virus, and Wuhan flu. Asians aren't your enemy nor are they your punchlines. Words matter, and his words allowed racists with hate-filled hearts to pull their masks off and hate in a way that is starkly open and, unfortunately, starkly American. I'm not sure what the full answer to this shit is. I wish it were as easy as having a stern lecture or something, but this shit runs deep. Personally, I try to be an ally I try to stand up if somebody says something in public if I'm nearby. I try to be brave like that, but it can be scary as hell. I have at times succeeded and absolutely failed at times as well. But if an old coward like me can find the strength to say, like, no, no more of this shit in my presence, then any of us can. I'm going to end this here and encourage everybody listening to 
actually listen to your Asian friends or maybe even podcasters and to not just hear them, but to actually listen to them when they talk about their experiences. This subject hits close to my own home because the woman I love is affected by it, but I'll never fully understand this situation. I can't. That's why I listen and try to learn, and I hope that you guys will too. Right now, I just want to read the names of those we lost in this horrific racist attack before moving on. And I really deeply apologize if I screw up these pronunciations despite trying to find them all. Soon Chung Park, 74. She liked to work and stay active, according to her son-in-law. Hyun Young Grant, 51. She loved karaoke, dancing in clubs, and she made the world's best kimchi stew, according to her son. Suncha Kim, 69, was a grandmother and loved to line dance. Young E. Yu, 63, was, according to her son, an amazing woman who loved to introduce family and friends to her home-cooked Korean food and Korean karaoke. Delena Ashley Yan, 33, leaves behind a 13-year-old son and an 8-month-old daughter. She and her husband had been married less than a year. Paul Andre Michaels, 54. He owned an alarm company in Atlanta where he and his wife Bonnie have lived for 26 years. Zhao Ji Tan was remembered as a curious, hardworking, and caring woman who was always filled with joy. Dao Yu Feng, 44, was regarded as kind and quiet. And since there's no easy way to transition from that to any other subject ever, I guess I'll just hit it running. So first, I want to talk about Governor Cuomo here briefly. We talked about this last episode, but Democratic allies have begun to actually peel away from Cuomo as he becomes increasingly embattled and has been forced to address calls for his resignation, a call which he has refused up to this point. Obviously, Cuomo is a terrible person. Obviously, he should be forced to resign and to face criminal justice for decisions he made in office and for assaulting female colleagues. But I want to talk about something else since we covered the allegations last episode. If Cuomo is eventually forced out, this does not purge the Democratic Party, any political party, or politicians, or CEOs, or any other powerful politician or powerful men of their complicity. The turning of these career ghouls on Cuomo is purely performance art. The forced resignation of Cuomo or even the end of his political career after this term, if either become true, it's little more than a ritual sacrifice that the powerful must periodically make of one of their own to calm the masses. As an example, we can look to the famed pharma bro, Martin Shkreli. Shkreli gained infamy for hiking the prices of critical, life-saving drugs to astronomical heights in the seeking of profits. That's the story that made you and I hate this man. That he and his company preyed upon the sick and dying. And the oligarch sacrificed him to quell our anger. But did you ever look at what he did that upset them? 
he defrauded the wealthy. He basically ran a pyramid scheme with his companies and lied to the investor class as he took their money. And see, here's the thing. The powerful in this country, they had no problem at all with Shkreli hiking the prices of medicine to drain the bank accounts of the dying, aside from the negative press and the sudden illumination of their own immoral price gouging. The powerful actually thought that Shkreli was doing the right thing because the powerful sat on his board. The powerful owned his stocks. The powerful invested with him. They didn't give a fuck about the sick people or their families. They just saw profits. They were willing to deal with the PR headaches to get their beaks wet in the blood of the dying pores. But then they noticed that he was fleecing them too. The exploitation of the poor, the sick, and the dying, that was nothing. That's old hat to these people. But to steal from the rich? Well, off to prison with you, dear boy. The banishment of Shkreli from the club was, in essence, just good public relations. It was good press. They could make a big show of locking up one of their own and then pat each other on the back as they drove back to their estates to do to poor people the exact same thing that Shkreli was doing without anyone taking a second look. It was a sacrifice just like Cuomo's banishment will be. A sacrifice for PR and nothing more. These people don't believe that Cuomo did anything truly wrong aside from getting caught and losing control of the story. So they'll cut him loose and then they'll bring in the next Cuomo because there is always another Cuomo. Political parties like these are they are like big Pez dispensers. As soon as one gets eaten up or dies, another one pops out. Dork after dork after dork after dork. An unending stream of assholes just keep pouring into the world. And we can draw another parallel here with cops. We can see cops gun down poor minorities in the streets, have it on HD video with clear audio and with 50 witnesses, and the cops will get paid vacations. Or, perhaps at best, they get fired from their job and simply move to another jurisdiction and they are immediately rehired by another department. There's a reason why cops involved in shootings rarely face real discipline, why they are rarely even charged for what they've done, and why any discipline they do actually face is so weak and flaccid. It's because other cops, including prosecutors as well as government officials, don't actually believe that the cops have done anything wrong. They just had the misfortune of getting caught. That's why you see the wagons circle around these violent thugs when they murder us. It's to protect the system. And far too often, the citizens take the side of the cops. They get on social media and cry about how hard the job is. They cry about how unfair it is to hold a cop accountable. They note how dark the dead guy's skin was and so on. But here's the thing, and it's the whole point of bringing up the cops here. You ever notice which cops are prosecuted? Which cops are, in fact, prosecuted with absolute glee and not defended even by other cops? It's the ones caught on tape being corrupt in the sense of taking money or drugs from criminals as payment to not arrest them. That's kind of the one unforgivable sin, 
even to the pro-cop, blue line flag, blue no matter who folks. Not necessarily the grift itself, but the getting caught doing it. You get a cop taking a payoff on film, the other cops back away. The prosecutors move in because the cops won't resist it. The mayor and governor, they move to make political hay off the situation. The citizens call for the cop's job, and even then they rarely face real repercussions, often simply losing their job rather than going to prison. But the corrupt cop or cops are indeed perp-walked into the courthouse. Their picture is on the front page of the city paper for a few days, and the chief of police makes insipid remarks about how this one cop was no good, but the rest are saints. The mayor talks about how brave he is for demanding that the DA press charges. And the DA says how brave they were for pressing charges. And the PR machine grinds on and the people buy it. In other words, the cop gets sacrificed because it becomes politically expedient. So yeah, fine. Enjoy the sacrifice of Cuomo, just like you enjoyed the sacrifice of Shkreli or the last cop you can think of who actually got in trouble for their malfeasance. But don't forget that in the end, it's all just a show. Okay, let's talk about this new COVID relief bill. I know, I know. We all find this repetitive and boring, but this is a pretty big event. I promise that this is one of the last purely political podcasts for a bit, unless a major event happens. I'll still definitely cover minor stuff during episodes, but I'm largely going to move on. Okay, so the bill. And I'm going to just buzz through here and not editorialize too much to keep it moving, but I'll hit what I think is significant. First off, it's actually not as bad as I thought it would be. It's actually mostly good. Or at least not terrible. And that hurt to say, if I'm being honest, I was really gearing up to throw fireballs here into really spend a lot more time assassinating Joe Biden's character. But that small bit of potential joy in this world has been mostly stolen from me. The biggest takeaway here is a pretty simple one. The government actually attacked a problem in a way that addresses the actual problem, even if it did so half-assed, which we will talk about a bit later, or that it only lasts for a short time. And they did it all with relative, for our government, Abandon. In the past, COVID relief bills were largely just financial pass-throughs to corporations and donors and lacked any real, substantive help for the people, people like you and I. Half-assed checks for the populace and massive checks and carve-outs for the corporations and wealthy, a.k.a. the donor class, the people who paid the politicians who designed it. Yes, that was Trump's reign. A government largely controlled by the Republicans Trump's party, while he sat in the Oval Office. But it wasn't just Trump or just the Republicans. The Democrats controlled the House and helped pass these ridiculous packages, all while singing their praises and lying to us about who these bills would actually help. So this current bill, passed by Democrats with a few Republican defectors in the House and along a party-line vote in the Senate, it's not perfect, not by a long shot but it did throw actual real money at a problem that required actual real money to even begin to fix, let alone solve. I'll at least give them that much. The strength of this bill is that nearly everything in it seems good. Yep, at first look, it's almost all good stuff. Not enough good stuff, 
Not good enough stuff, but still largely good. I'm kind of stunned, honestly. The biggest weaknesses are what's not in the bill. For the first several relief bills, the weaknesses and the real malevolence of these things was actually what was written in the bill itself. We talked about those bills, especially the first two, in previous episodes of this podcast. Feel free to check out episodes 2 and 20 for more on all of that if you want a refresher. And I can't overstate how crazy this turnaround is. Like those first bills were 90% shit, 8% bland, and 2% helpful for regular people who really needed it. This newest bill is like 90% at least mostly good, about 8% bland, and 2% just shit. And I'm just talking about what's actually in the bill here. I'll talk about what's left out in a little while. The Biden administration decided to call this bill the American Rescue Plan, the ARP, which kind of makes me happy that they avoided some shitty acronym like HEROES or CARES or PATRIOT or BALD EAGLE or whatever. It was starting to be like that joke in one of the Marvel movies about what S.H.I.E.L.D. stood for. What does S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for, Agent Ward? Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. And what does that mean to you? someone really wanted our initials to spell out shield. All right. So I do have some issues with this bill, but I'm going to throw a curveball to my loyal listeners and start with the good aspects and perhaps a, on a bit of a positive note. And maybe I won't angrily yell for a few minutes. Okay, so I'm going to do my best here to list some of the biggest good things in this bill and break it down to the best of my ability and address the good and bad aspects of each section. But I do want to note that this is still kind of early in the process of people breaking this monster bill down and reading the real language of what's going on. And I'm cynical enough not to die in these hills if a closer reading reveals that some of these things have weaknesses that I don't know about right now. And by the way, have you ever actually tried to read a bill like this? Even doing my best to skip by the extraneous language and focus on what's really actually being said is pretty tough. And to actually read it from cover to cover is an exercise in a level of self-hatred that I just have not hit yet. Seriously, though, go try and read a section and try to make heads and tails of it. It's, it's ridiculous. All this legalese and what-fors and what-nots and thereby's and unto's and if-thens and refer-to's and all that. and It's all quite ineffable at times, at least for a moron like me. Okay, all that out of the way. Let's talk about the checks. And for now, I'm mostly going to talk about the good side of this thing and hit the negatives a little later. All I'll say about the negative stuff is a quick, they are not enough and took too long, and then move on. So the checks are for $1,400, and they are already appearing in people's bank accounts. This is good. People need help. They are getting a little help. I'll dump on these checks in a bit, but for now, I'm just going to say that $1,400 will very much help many families and many individuals in this country, and we shouldn't just focus purely on any negatives here. Let's just admit that this will be life-changing, or if not life-changing, then at least year-changing for many people. And you know what? Life-changing was definitely an overstatement there. But families and individuals will be helped with these checks. Let's just be clear about that. The next thing I want to bring up should make everybody happy. It's being called a child tax credit, but really it's a type of guaranteed income, a sort of UBI in fact, for families with children. 
The previous tax credit plan that this bill will alter paid families through their tax return after factoring in what was owed them and due to the government in the filing of those taxes. The new relief plan calls for families to receive $300 per child per month. The primary strength of a program like this is that it guarantees these families a steady, dependable, guaranteed income throughout the year. It's just absolutely amazing that such a simple thing can pull almost half of low-income families from poverty levels to above that, and that there is actually a fight to prevent that from happening. I can't overstate how revolutionary this truly is in the moment, even though it is only set to last one calendar year. This single idea could fundamentally change how we think about welfare programs and the concept of universal basic income more broadly. The child tax credit in the Biden bill will reduce childhood poverty by up to 50% in this country. Just think about that for a second. And screw anybody who thinks that this is bad. 50% fewer children will go hungry or be housing insecure or homeless or lacking heat, air conditioning, or better clothing. That's a good goddamn thing. I don't care how it happens. The other nice thing about this tax credit is that the Democrats actually seem like they intend to make this thing permanent. I'm not fully buying into that just yet. These scumbags cannot be trusted after all, but I just like that people are talking about it. Now, if you're paying attention to those who are arguing against such a morally correct move, they will make claims that a tax credit will reduce incentives to work. This is, of course, bullshit. It's a fake scare tactic. Feel free to dismiss such nonsense. There's no evidence for this as far as I can tell. It's merely based on the gut feeling people have because of the narratives they've been fed their entire lives about welfare queens and people quote-unquote freeloading, which are both entirely racist memes that have their hooks deep in our throats. But let's move on here and not slip into a Ronald Reagan rant. The bill takes the $300 a week unemployment benefits from the final Trump relief bill, which would have expired by now, and extends them to September 6th. Not as good as it could be, which we will hit on, but not nothing. The bill addresses housing as well. $20 billion to help with emergency rent issues and more broad homelessness issues, as well as $10 billion to help with mortgages. Now, there's probably one more really big stimulus item here. And that's local and state governments, for whom $350 billion is being set aside. This is a good thing, and it's much needed. These COVID shutdowns have obviously devastated the tax base for towns, cities, and states. And these are levels of government that actually do rely on tax income, unlike the federal government. In fact, at least 26 states saw not just declines in revenue, but massive nosedives. And just as a quick aside and question here, do any of you want an episode on MMT? I mean, honestly, it's coming either way just because I find it interesting, but maybe I'll bump it up in the schedule if anyone responds to this question. Okay, so the local and state governments are severely underfunded over the past year due to lockdowns. These budget shortfalls have forced these government entities to reduce their workforce, cutting over 1.3 million jobs across the country or more than one of every 20 government jobs further hurting these localities. 
All right, and now that we've run through the bigger, more substantial things, and most interesting to me, aspects of this bill that are unabashedly good things, I want to run down some more positives, but in briefer fashion for the most part. The biggest section of what's left is the money and support going to direct response to the pandemic. Now, I actually couldn't find an accurate number for this one. Some say tens of billions of dollars. Some say shitloads. Some just say a lot. I don't know. But let's go with tens of billions. It sounds reasonable. But that much money will go towards direct pandemic response. This will help with vaccine rollout and testing, as well as hiring more healthcare workers across the country. Biden is saying that anyone who wants a vaccine should be able to get one by the end of May. So we'll see on that. Again, I tend to be skeptical where this shit is going on. Schools will also get a big boost here. $130 billion will go to help get kindergarten through high schools to reopen by improving ventilation systems, reducing class size, and to help purchase personal protective equipment and barriers for distancing. Colleges will get $40 billion to help with housing and food precarity of its students, among other things. There will also be money for early childhood and child care block grant programs and a billion dollars for Head Start programs which provide preschool education as well as health and nutrition help for low-income families. After this, we mostly get to uninteresting stuff. FEMA gets some money, states get $10 billion for infrastructure, a couple of fairly minor tax credits get extended, and so on. But two other things struck me as kind of odd for an entirely different reason, and after these we will transition to the bad aspects of this bill, so I can raise my voice a little bit and yell. I guess these next two things will serve as our natural transition to angry Sean. Okay, so COBRA and pension bailouts. Why are they even in this bill? These things are sort of tweeners here between good and bad. Well, actually, COBRA is a tweener. The pension thing is actually good. It's just weird to find in a bill like this, I guess. Okay, so why is the COBRA thing weird? Well, actually, let's talk about COBRA. COBRA is basically a government program that has been around since 1985, which, quote-unquote, allows you to buy insurance if you become unemployed. In theory, this is decent, I guess. I, even though we shouldn't have to buy fucking insurance, but that's another thing altogether. Just stick with this thing here, Sean. All right. Deep breath. Okay, so COBRA is another of those acronyms that annoy the hell out of me. COBRA stands for, stick with me here, the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. In other words, they really wanted this shit to spell COBRA. And it was passed by the Reagan administration, so you know it just feeds money into the insurance trough. The problem with COBRA is that it is spectacularly expensive, absurdly expensive. It's so expensive that Congress people should be open hand slapped in the face every time they suggest that someone should use it. It is fucking terrible. In this instance here, COBRA is being funded at 100% by the government. Basically, they are just allowing those who lose their jobs to get free insurance for a little while, which is cool. Except that it's through COBRA. Basically, Every other option on the planet is a better and cheaper alternative. Here's the secret with this decision, though, at least as far as I see it. 
The reason why they are using Cobra is to not use a program like Medicare, which is far better and far cheaper. Why? Why would they not use the better program we might ask ourselves? My bet is that they don't want people to understand how much value Medicare has in it and how good it is. Remember, these are people who are adamantly opposed to implementing Medicare for All, so they don't want us normies to understand how great of a move that would be. Oh, and COBRA also happens to function as a direct pass-through of billions of dollars to private insurance giants as well. That's that Reagan stuff I mentioned a little ways back. So those are my cynical-ass guesses why they did it this way. Nothing else explains it as far as I can tell. So the other odd thing is the pension help. $86 billion will be provided to help out failing pensions. This is good on its face, as hundreds of thousands of retired workers will get their retirement benefits for at least two decades, perhaps even three. The oddness and criticism of this assistance is that it really has little or nothing to do with the pandemic, which is actually, you know, pretty true. These pensions were failing before anyone got sick. But saving hundreds of thousands of retirees from penury is well worth it. Okay, now on to the bad stuff. Let's start with the bad stuff that was actually in the bill first. Let's talk about those checks again. First of all, they are way too late and come up much too short. Even setting aside what these checks should be, let's talk about what we were promised. We were promised $2,000 checks. The promise was repeated and explicit. $2,000 checks done immediately after being sworn in. Don't believe me? Go watch the election commercials that ran in Georgia where the Democrats lied directly to Georgians to get their vote and then immediately kicked them in the face when they got that vote. Don't tell me that Ossif and Warnock are some sort of heroes for not delivering on their promises. They're either liars or cowards or both as far as I can tell from where I'm sitting. This is precisely how you get obliterated in the midterms, by the way, by sucking at your job and failing to keep your promises. You think whoever the Republicans run won't bring this up from months on end and turn that election? Oh, I almost forgot. These new checks are not protected from debt collectors, at least in these first days. This is a massive failing of this bill. And I'll note that Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon is set to introduce a separate bill to protect this money from these scumbag debt collectors, but it will be too late for many by the time it passes. The first relief check, the one passed a year ago, it was not protected from garnishment, and many thousands of people and families lost a vital lifeline just when they needed it the most. The second check, the $600 check, that one was protected. Even the Republicans got that one right. These checks are being sent out to help people in distress, not to settle debt with these abhorrent vultures in the debt collection industry, or at least that's what they tell us, right? But a failure to protect these checks sends an entirely different message to the workers of the world. And that message is that they do not care if some terrible person in a New Jersey strip mall office suite strips you of vital assistance during a pandemic. 
And this was an active choice. It wasn't a failure to see this. It was talked about for months leading up to the drafting of this bill. These ghouls left it out for a reason. These checks are also being means tested, meaning that they get phased out at higher earning levels. Basically, the entire check phases out for individuals who earn $80,000 or couples who earn $160,000. Now, a lot of people like this, they think, why should we help people who earned $80,000 or $160,000 as a couple? And I say to that, that this whole situation, this past year in its entirety, damaged not just the poorest amongst us, but it also affected those who have a little bit more than some others. This isn't about whatever it is that makes us not like seeing middle-class people get assistance. It's about just helping people who need help and even just getting money back into the economy. This new level of means testing, which dropped both of these levels, the 80 and the $160,000 limits from the previous bill, isn't a backbreaker, but the levels should have remained at their previous level, in my opinion. The main point here, is that we should get money to people. End of the sentence. Okay, two more things. One quick one, and then a bigger one. The quick one has to do with the $300 unemployment benefit. It started as $400. It should have stayed at $400. It probably should have been more. But the Democrats once again negotiated against themselves for no apparent reason. These people truly do not understand how to wield power. And now, the last thing. That would be the minimum wage increase. Biden and the rest of the Democrats left it completely out of the bill. I don't want to spend too much time grinding on this because we already covered it in a previous episode, but the fact that the Democrats completely left the minimum wage out of this bill is just incomprehensible. It was literally the only way to get a $15 minimum wage passed and it absolutely needs to get passed. The Democrats let an unelected, non-binding opinion derail this thing. And you know what? Let is a bad word to use. They hoped that they wouldn't have to include this. There is no other explanation here. They could have rejected the parliamentarian and taken a path that required just the 50 votes to pass it. Some of those paths would have been pretty serpentine if the Republicans chose to be dicks, but they all ended in a simple majority vote. And the Democrats folded on it and screwed over millions of Americans. Now, in a lot of ways, the actual good aspects of this bill highlight the danger of a Biden-type administration over even that of a worse person like Donald Trump. Trump was a nationalist, America first, racist, demagogic, misogynistic, jingoistic, chauvinist. In other words, he was very much fascistic in how he wanted to run the country. But even being fascistic, Trump didn't really have a pointed political belief system, nor an understanding of either government or policy. And this lack of real, true ideology was actually a benefit to us. Trump was never a real threat to American democracy. It was always the next guy for who he was buttering the slide. The reason why a Biden-led administration is so much more dangerous is because they are actually competent. They hold many of the same policy goals, but have the intelligence, capacity, and wherewithal 
to actually do these things successfully. If Trump voters really wanted to build a wall, they would have voted for somebody like Marco Rubio. If Rubio had won the presidency, there would be a more significant amount of new wall construction on our southern border, guaranteed. Because Rubio and Jeb Bush or whoever else, they would have been smart enough to not make the border wall a racist flashpoint. They would have stuck to their standard and wildly incorrect economic and emotional talking points and the Democrats would have co-signed everything along the way. The racialization of the idea by Trump and his racist cohorts actually sunk the sort of border wall that Democrats and Republicans both would have happily paid for and championed. Biden and the people around him are smart enough to not do that. And this is the key to the danger of a more normal presidential regime. They know what they're doing and they know how to make it palatable to enough people to do it without much kickback other than from a few tiny, unheard podcasts like this one. Nothing is more dangerous to the freedom we enjoy in this country than a competent president backed by a competent administration. So how do we wrap this up? I guess we wrap this up with me saying that the bill is surprisingly good. I think I said before that This legislation is notable for containing almost nothing that is purely bad or rotten or evil. And, well, you know, that Cobra shit that is just a pass-through to insurance companies is pretty terrible, but beyond that, nothing obvious. On the other hand, it left out or short-armed several very good and very important things. But if we pull out and get a little bit more meta here, we can see some other weaknesses. The good things, they are one time only, like the checks and the money for schools, or they last for a very short period of time. There is a very real, very likely chance that this bill will function largely as a landlord and debtor bailout, just like the CARES Act back nearly a year ago. And this is an important thing to consider as we think about this bill. The American people needed real help, more help. And this bit of legislation just applied a Band-Aid, a decent Band-Aid, one that won't fall off in two hours and will help keep the wound from getting infected, but it is impermanent and not fit for the full requirements of the job it's meant to do. Sadly for us, applying a decent but inadequate Band-Aid to a massive social, cultural, and economic problem is a remarkably better-than-average thing to do for the United States government. But it also left a lot of good things out as well, something which the government is quite good at, unfortunately. And that's the final takeaway from this whole thing. This bill is about as good as one can hope for from this system. This is it. But despite the relative goodness of this bill, we shouldn't let anyone forget its failings. In a perfect world, maybe this thing is 80 or 90% of what is realistically possible with our government as it currently sits. And I'm not talking about who the president is or, or who controls Congress or who has appointed more justices to the Supreme Court. I'm talking about the underlying skeleton that is our government and its three branches. A president, a bicameral Congress with a supremely powerful Senate, and a supreme judiciary for life. In that context... This bill is about as good as it gets for us. And while it's good to hit that close to optimal, it's pretty bad 
that this close to optimal, again, within this system, gives us such a fundamentally flawed result. What this points out to us is that our current system's point of optimization is not good enough. It's kind of odd that we make such a big deal out of the skin color or sexual orientations of some of our lawmakers and applaud ourselves for electing such a diverse group of people, even if that diversity doesn't go all that deep if we really look into it. And while I said it's odd, I don't mean to dismiss diversity. Like I said before, diversity is absolutely a great thing and a positive. But don't let surface-level diversity obscure how this government lacks a certain form of diversity that is just as important, if not more. Our government right now is still mostly men, mostly straight, and mostly white, with some exceptions, of course. We even have a decent amount of women, though certainly not nearly enough, but again, mostly white, mostly straight. Oh, and all of those folks are mostly Christian too, right? All of that and some diversity around the edges, which is great, like I said, but we need more diversity all over the place. But the sort of diversity that we are seeing in government is a diversity of primarily identity, which is, again, important. I don't, I really don't want to let that slide by. It's truly important to have. But what's the one thing that, while not universal across the board, is the trait that more of these people have in common more than anything else? It's wealth. In this system, in this country, wealth is power. And not even just personal wealth. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer don't control the House and the Senate, respectively, because they are personally wealthy. And they both are extremely wealthy, by the way. They control both houses because they are very, very good at convincing other very, very wealthy people to contribute to the party. And through that wealth, the party maintains and grows its power. And because the party maintains and grows power and influence through those donations, Pelosi and Schumer keep their little fiefdoms. And there is a similar dynamic on the other side of the political aisle with the Republicans. There they are, the hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, paying to play and buying into power. Using that wealth and that power to divide us and confuse us and convince us that we aren't worthy. And here we are, us, the hundreds of millions, worshipping them, signal boosting them, deifying them. Here we are voting for them, defending them, and refusing to hold them accountable. They've paid for power and bought us off. Welcome to the plutocracy. Plutocracy. 